Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why does Dracula still resonate with audiences over a century later? The disease metaphor is one possible reason, but there's another less discussed theory as well. Plus, one team of scientists have detected traces of an ancient ocean on Mars and a turkey-flavored beer for your dog to enjoy this Thanksgiving. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Long before this past month of Halloween, Dracula seemed to be having something of a renaissance. All depictions of it, I suppose, but mostly the original 1897 novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. And this was thanks in large part to Dracula Daily, which I mentioned ahead of its second run beginning back in May. Dracula Daily is a newsletter which sends the unabridged contents of the original novel, which is in the public domain, to subscribers' emails in chunks, matching up with the date in which they take place in the novel. And when the project first ran in 2021, it garnered 1,600 subscribers. When it ran again this year, it had over 250,000 subscribers largely thanks to it taking off on Tumblr, where memes and fan art ran rampant. The project, as the novel does, will be wrapping up on November 7th, so if you want to take part, time is almost up. Of course, you can always catch up by reading the newsletter's archive or just getting a copy of the book from your local library or bookstore. But why did Dracula Daily take off so much this year? Apart from many Tumblr users adopting protagonist Jonathan Harker as their latest crush, and why did those Tumblr users find themselves drawn to Harker and to the larger story? Writing yesterday in The Atlantic, Columbia University professor of Jewish literature and American studies Jeremy Dauber has a theory. First, Dauber points to the most surface-level analysis of Dracula, that of agency and sexuality, particularly positioned as the novel was, both in publication and in setting, in the Victorian era. Count Dracula turning an innocent young woman into a sensual vampire is a plot point dripping with as much debate potential then as now, even if it hits slightly differently now. And he also brings up the theme of disease in vampire tales. As I discussed on the show this time last year, some historians have pointed to a rise in vampiric and vampire-adjacent myths and scares during epidemics. 
Stanley Stepanek, in particular, a professor of Slavic studies at the University of Virginia, has written about several diseases that weren't well understood in previous eras and whose symptoms occasionally led the afflicted to being accused of vampirism. Diseases like rabies, which is primarily spread through biting and can occasionally cause aversion to water or light, as well as altered sleep patterns and increased aggression. A few other diseases, as well as a misunderstanding of bodily decomposition, led to spikes in vampire scares here and there throughout history. But another significant contributor was the need to scapegoat. Like during the eras of witch hunts or the more recent satanic panic, when big disturbances that can't immediately be explained are happening, people need someone to blame. And this gets a bit closer to Dauber's point in The Atlantic yesterday about the strongest, least talked about reason that Dracula as a novel may be resonating with folks now. The way the novel presents and discusses the spread of information. Firstly, Dracula is an epistolary novel. This is the whole crux of the Dracula Daily Newsletter. The novel is made up of letters, journal entries, newspaper articles, and telegrams. In the newsletter, this means that you're getting emailed selections of the book on the actual month and day that they're dated in the novel. In the novel itself, it gives the story a sense of immediacy, which was Bram Stoker's point. He didn't want to waste time on exposition if it could be gathered contextually. And because it wasn't just letters from one person, but a whole range of media from various authors, we get a bit more of a, as Dauber calls it, panoramic view of the plot and characters. And this allows readers to try to work out what's happening using information collected from various viewpoints, but without the full picture. Now, this experience is a little lost on modern audiences who are overly familiar with the vampire stereotypes largely created by this novel and then recreated ad nauseum in loose adaptations over the years. That irony is part of what appealed to Tumblr fans of Dracula Daily in the early days. Web comics and posts proliferated of Jonathan Harker being blissfully unaware why all the townspeople at the beginning of his journey were trying to give him crucifixes and begging him not to venture out to Dracula's castle. We modern audiences know what's going on, but contemporary readers may not have picked up on all the clues. As Dauber writes, quote, It's worth returning to the novel as Stoker intended, experiencing the character's individual unease, trapped in a world quickly ceasing to make sense while they struggle to figure out what precisely is going on. We know this confusion well in our own lives. The horrific familiarity of a blizzard of emails, chats, texts, tweets, multiple media all telling part of the story, and all too often a misleading part at that. We find ourselves barraged by so many claims and counterclaims that truth collapses, which is when a real monster can prey on our inability to distinguish between fact and fiction. It's worth noting that Dracula's monstrous behaviors extend to tampering with the mail. Early in the novel, he intercepts letters that might give away his planned move to London. What happens in the interstices while we try to make sense of everything? Evil is on the march, the novel whispers. That's what. And who doesn't share unease about that? End quote. Dauber goes on to say that when Dracula eventually does move to London and successfully attacks the young woman Lucy, no one there seems bothered to take action. Quote, What protects Dracula the most in London is the fact that it seems impossible for anyone in modern London to believe such a thing as a vampire could possibly exist. 
In an age of too much information, our preconceptions and priors take over to help us weed through explanations. And in an age of Victorian scientism, that means vampires aren't an option, even if they very much are. End quote. Now, this might sound a bit like the novel being in support of believing conspiracy theories, you know, believing in something that seems utterly unbelievable, and maybe it is. But Dauber suggests a slightly different framing around not discounting information just because it's outlandish, or it couldn't happen here to me. Ultimately, he says, the novel very strongly aligns good and evil although the good is also very strongly aligned with the Christian faith in ways that seem more than a bit xenophobic and anti-Semitic. But Dauber concludes, quote, It means that the novel's optimistic conclusion, in which Van Helsing's group, led by a divine sense that good will always win out, turns fragmented individualism into collectivity to overcome doubt and confusion, landing a resounding victory over the monster. It's based on a kind of counter-conspiracy of faith. Shadowy threats might exist, but will come together, gain moral and epistemological clarity, and flatten the threat once and for all. End quote. Now, I'm not sure how confident I am in that reading. You know, it could be very easy for all of those QAnon brainwashed folks waiting in Dallas for JFK to return from the dead to feel like they are a collective brought together to overcome doubt and confusion with the truth. I suppose, like any text, anyone can make of it what they will. But I do think that analyzing Dracula through the lens of misinformation and the spread of information, especially new information technologies, like the telegram and the explosion of popular newspapers were back then, is a very intriguing take. With that lens, I might just have to catch up on Dracula Daily before it concludes next week. Was there once an ocean in Mars's northern hemisphere? It's a debate that has raged among scientists for decades. There's a general consensus that Mars used to be much wetter than it now is, but despite various findings dating all the way back to the 1976 Viking orbiters, no ancient ocean has ever been confirmed. And it still hasn't, but a new study published in October in the Journal of Geophysical Research Planets has identified a distinctive shoreline and used satellite images to create a topography map that suggests a massive ocean once existed in the red planet's northern hemisphere. Quoting Space.com, a map of the Martian region known as Aeolus Dorsa, a boundary that separates the elevated, cratered southern highlands of Mars from the planet's smooth northern lowlands, strongly suggests a shoreline left by a massive ocean. The map of the area reveals that the red planet once experienced sea level rise consistent with a warm, wet climate, in stark contrast with the frozen and dry Martian landscape seen today. End quote. The shoreline is about three and a half billion years old and 900 meters thick. Lead author Benjamin Cardenas of Penn State said in a university statement, quote, The big novel thing that we did in this paper was think about Mars in terms of its stratigraphy and its sedimentary record. On Earth, we chart the history of waterways by looking at sediment that is deposited over time. We call that stratigraphy, the idea that water transports sediment, and you can measure the changes on Earth by understanding the way that sediment piles up. That's what we've done here, but it's Mars. 
The stratigraphy that we're interpreting here is quite similar to stratigraphy on Earth. Yes, it sounds like a big claim to say we've discovered records of large waterways on Mars, but in reality, this is relatively mundane stratigraphy. It's textbook geology once you recognize it for what it is. The interesting part, of course, is it's on Mars. End quote. And from Science Alert, quote, Using data from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter collected in 2007, the team applied an analysis of ridge thicknesses, angles, and locations to understand the area of study, the topographical depression known as the Aeolus Dorsa region on Mars. And it seems probable that a significant amount of change was happening on this part of the planet all those years ago, Cardenas explains. This is shown by the evidence of substantial sea level increases and the rapid movement of rocks by rivers and currents. Today, Aeolus Dorsa contains the most concentrated collection of fluvial ridges on Mars. End quote. And the stratigraphic records here can tell us a lot about the ancient climate on Mars and how it evolved over time, but it may also tell us if there was ever life on Mars. As Cardenas put it, an ocean this big would be the best place to look for scientists attempting to find a record of life on Mars. And he further said, quote, A major goal for the Mars Curiosity rover missions is to look for signs of life. It's always been looking for water, for traces of habitable life. This is the biggest one yet. It's a giant body of water fed by sediments coming from the highlands, presumably carrying nutrients. If there were tides on ancient Mars, they would have been here gently bringing in and out water. This is exactly the type of place where ancient Martian life could have evolved. End quote. Now, as I said, there have been many studies hinting at evidence of an ancient ocean in the northern hemisphere of Mars over the years, and this newest study, while interesting and exciting, doesn't confirm anything, but as we continue missions on Mars, we will edge ever closer to discovering some solid, or I guess rather liquid, answers. Anheuser-Busch has just launched a turkey-flavored beer for your dog. Now, I somehow missed this, but in 2020, the Budweiser beer makers debuted a new line of beer for dogs. Made from bone broth, herbs, and vegetables, the doggy beer is non-alcoholic and supposedly a healthy supplement for pets. The dog beer comes in cans of four packs and can be served as is, frozen into ice cubes, or poured over dog food to soften it. And it is technically safe for humans, but representatives say it'll taste a bit bland. When Bush launched the original pork bone broth dog beer in August of 2020, it sold out within 24 hours, and it has since become a best-selling favorite. And now, earlier last month, Bush Beer announced their limited edition turkey broth version just in time for Thanksgiving. This one is a blend of turkey, sweet potato, basil, ginger, turmeric, and peppermint leaves, or as Design Taxi calls it, quote, basically a Thanksgiving dinner purified and blended, end quote. Bush notes that the ingredients in their dog brew can help promote a healthy digestive system for dogs, and it's even a good way for dogs that struggle with solid food to get all of their nutrients. Both the original and the limited edition turkey flavor are available on Bush's website in four packs for $15 each, which is honestly cheaper than I expected it to be. You can even do a monthly subscription of two cans per month for $6.50. Or if you don't think your dog would be into the beer, you can get them a plush toy version of any of Anheuser-Busch's beers. 
All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.